So good evening, Sangha. Can you hear me? Okay, I'll try to speak kind of loudly and clearly with this mask on my face. <laughs> uh oh, my glasses are fogging up. <laughs> That's going to be a problem. <laughs> So we are all here in deep ceremony practicing insight meditation, insight, wisdom meditation, because that's what frees us. It's not our beloved, very smart thinking mind that does it, though I think that can be definitely useful for some things but we are practicing for insight to happen. I like to say that mindfulness is the data collection system for wisdom to arise. We just watch things as they're happening and notice certain things and that feeds our intuitive awareness or our wisdom mind and given the right length of time of watching something or just the strengthening of mental factors, a big insight will arise that will help free us from our suffering. And our suffering, dukkha, is really brought about because we want things to be different than they are or we're trained that, you know, if th something good happens to us, it should last forever. <laughs> and that if we got the right job or the right amount of money or the right partner or the right house, we would be permanently happy. Or that, you know, given the right amount of prestige or fame or whatever, clinging to I, me, and mine, that would make us happy. But the Buddha, oh my gosh, he was like the most brilliant psychologist who ever lived. <laughs> and that was 2,600 years ago, right? <coughs> right before we came over here, and we walked over here, <laughs> um, I sent uh, Ebony, our b wonderful retreat uh, support, our my final Dharma talk and the abstract of this um, journal article that came out about three or four months ago. But the printer was not available, so I'll try to tell you what the article said. And, you know, I think I mentioned it before, but I was really amazed. So it was in the journal um, Nature, Human Behavior, which is a very highly cited scientific journal. And it was, the it was the findings of a meta-analysis with one T, not two Ts. <laughs> a meta-analysis is when they put together all of, uh, they put together about, I don't know how many studies, I think it was like close to 200. They gathered all of the data from about 200 National Institutes of Health funded studies. I think they're in or the subjects they had 
over 50,000 subjects, and they looked at all of these different interventions for well-being, you know, psych, uh, psychotherapy and probably exercise and, you know, all these different approaches. And guess what came out on top? I just thought that was so brilliant. Mindfulness is the most impactful and highly rated intervention for mental well-being of any uh, approach to um, well-being right now. That's what the science says. And, you know, many of us I know teach the Dhamma in um, public settings, so we can't really be pushing a religion, right? <laughs> so I like to call this, even though, you know, my experience is that it's an incredibly deep spirituality, um, I like to say that this is the most advanced psychology out there. And it's 2,600 years old, and it is a, excuse my highfalutin language, <laughs> an epistemology of the global south. It is a knowledge system that's pretty different than Western ways of knowing. But it really works. So one of the foundational principles of this approach to well-being is to see for ourselves, have insights into these three characteristics, the three characteristics of existence that pretty much apply to everything, to our lives as a whole. And those three things, I'm sure many of us know, are impermanence. Everything is absolutely impermanent. Well, any conditioned thing, any thing that has a nature to be born or to be made. Uh, any conditioned thing is absolutely impermanent. And then the second characteristic is that anything that has a nature to, anything that is impermanent is inherently unsatisfactory. And then the third is that um, consistent with, I like to say this, I'm going to say it, <laughs> a lot of indigenous ways of knowing and uh, life ways that we are profoundly interconnected. That our individuality, our ego clinging, our ego is actually the source of a lot of pain and suffering for us. So, and you know, when the Buddha, he um, wrote, you know, Various suttas or various, well, he didn't write them, he spoke them. And then I think about 500 years later, they were written down. So this is an oral tradition. But he talked various ways about um, how to have these insights. I mean, that's what the practice is all about, particularly uh, samadhi. You know, this is an eightfold path. Sila is uh, ethical conduct. We can't have any good insights or any lasting peace without really having ethical conduct in our lives. And um, samadhi, which is what we're doing here. I guess we're doing all of them here because we took the precepts, but we are definitely delving um, more directly into right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, which is the... Um, Samadhi aspect of the Eightfold Path, and then uh, right view, 
those are the three big ways that this practice really helps, brings our well-being. So tonight I'm going to talk about one of the big um, characteristics of everything, and that is impermanence. Impermanence. And the Buddha, in various suttas, actually probably in four or five different suttas, he wrote how to do contemplations of impermanence in order to have an insight about it. Isn't that cool? I mean, he not only said, you know, everything is impermanent. He said, this is how you might consider practicing in order to have a big insight about it. I think that is really, that's excellent psychotherapeutic advice, I think. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about that. So, um, let me see here. So, um, anicca, uh, which is the Pali word for impermanence, anicca, is thought to be the first characteristic. I always thought it was the second. I thought dukkha was the first, or uh, unsatisfactoriness, but it's actually anicca, which is impermanence. And um, he taught that the way to have an insight into impermanence was to contemplate the five aggregates and just how impermanent the five aggregates are. And the five aggregates are, oh, well, here, I'll read part of the sutta for you. <coughs> In the Anicca Siha Sutta, he explains how to do reflections on impermanence itself. So there the Blessed One said, the five aggregates are impermanent. Bhikkhus, form, feeling, perceptions, formations, consciousness. Form is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. Feeling is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. Perception is impermanent changing, becoming otherwise. Mental formations is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. Consciousness is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. And I will tell you what those are and how to do some reflections. But, but actually built into that is that um, we all have... Um, according to Buddhist psychology, we all have seven latent um, torments or latent tendencies that are not very good. And, you know, in Buddhist psychology, there's only 52 mental factors, right? There's only 52 mental factors that could be in your mind at any time. Some of them are there all the time, and they're neutral, and some of them are really beautiful and positive, and lead to awakening and to happiness and well-being. And some of them, particularly these seven, are the ones that we're really watching out for. And, you know, depending on the strength of them, you know, that's what comes in when we're just doing our daily walks of life, right? And, and um, seeing impermanence helps us really to get rid of these seven latent torments. And, you know... Uh, all of this is written down in 
uh, a teaching of the Buddha called the uh, Abhidhamma. Bhikkhu Bodhi, who I consider to be our pope, <laughs> uh, put together or did the translation of this thousand-page book. And then one of our other senior teachers, Steve Armstrong, did a 40-page synopsis of it. And I'm going to give you our QR code for you all to download it at the end of the retreat so you can read it. <laughs> Don't you love um, Reader's Digest versions of things? <laughs> so the seven latent torments or the seven latent tendencies are sensual lust, aversion, wrong views, doubt, conceit, Lust for existence and ignorance. Those are pretty big ones. And, you know, I mean, we could probably look at what's happening in our beloved planet, our beloved country, and probably blame what's happening on a lot of those things. So um, the latent torments are unconscious biases. They all lurk in our unconscious, ever ready to rise into action at the slightest provocation by greed, hatred, or delusion, which are ever-present in the unawakened mind and the unawakened world. According to the sutta, the latent tendency can be destroyed by cultivating insight into impermanence. Such insight is the mindful seeing of the changing nature of all that is being experienced to realize that things that we have just an unconscious bias of thinking that they're permanent or that they should be permanent, you know, once we see them, we just collect the data. It's not a lot of thinking. It's just watching how things are changing all the time. That is, um, you know, building the strength or feeding an insight into impermanence. And then we have one. So um, the uh, Buddha taught that we need to um, see the impermanence of the five aggregates. And those five aggregates are form, which is the physical nature of our bodies and of the world. Feelings, which are um, just how every experience that we have. This is, uh, feeling is one of those constant mental factors that is always present. When we have contact with anything, well, it's either we experience it either as pleasant, as unpleasant, or as neutral. And of course, pleasant can be small or huge. The same with unpleasant, it can be slightly annoying or, oh my gosh, totally unbearable. And neutral, you know, that's the hardest one to really figure out. But the Buddha taught how to do reflections. To see, um, to see these things, yes. So form is the physical body. Feeling is, you know, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Um, form, feeling, perception. Perceptions are our thoughts. You know, just how thoughts arise when we have contact with something. Mental formations are actually emotions. You know, what kind of the uh, emotion as an energetic hit of something that we're experiencing, usually related to our thoughts and consciousness. <coughs> and consciousness is 
Um, just given the uh, incredible variety of um, experiences that we've had, it is what arises when uh, we see something, hear something, taste something, uh, feel something, or hear something. The aggregates, I mean the uh, sense doors. It's a response to the sense doors. Or just how we make sense of it. And, you know, we're making all of that up. Even Western philosophy says it's all made up, right? <laughs> we're just making it all up. It's all what we agree on what something is. It's not like, you know, if we believe in God, there's a three-by-five card in heaven that says this is what it means to be this or this is what this is, right? It's all made up. <laughs> and convenient for some and less convenient for others. But how do we do reflections on this? So um, uh, we reflect on form or on our physical presence, you know, on our physicality of the body. Uh, one way that he has us do reflections on that is just to see the uh, four elements as our bodies, to see the four elements in our bodies. And I love that reflection because... Um, it's a very indigenous one. I mean, I've never been to a native ceremony that wasn't somehow around the four elements, right? I mean, it, it really is brought in as a foundational understanding of who we are. And um, I did a guided meditation, I think, was that? Last night? Yeah, on the four elements. Just seeing the earth element as hardness, and uh, density, and just, you know, actually softness as well. The skin is the earth element, uh, the nails and our hair, at different, all, you know, what hair we have on our body is actually earth element as well. And then water element is um, flowing and cohesion. <coughs> and we know, you know, our bodies are filled with liquid, right? And, uh, you know, pus and phlegm and mucus is also water element. And then fire element is, um, is temperature, you know, heat and coolness, any temperature at all. But heat is considered kind of the norm for the body because when our body starts getting cold, that's a sign that, you know, life is leaving us. And then um, air element, which is also huge for our uh, being alive. And it's so interesting to see the impermanent nature of all of these. I love fire element and earth element because, I mean, that's reflected in just us being, you know, newborns and children and adolescents and young adults and adults and aged people. I mean, those are the changing and permanent nature of the elements right here. I mean, we can look at ourselves and um, <clears throat> just see how we're aging or how we're changing. And um, it's important and very, very useful to see that, the impermanent nature of these bodies. And I think, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty obvious much of the time that uh, everything is changing in this, right? And it's so interesting how we're, uh, you know, we're enticed to 
pay so much attention to have the body look like this or it should look like that. And, you know, that's kind of greed for um, a dangling um, positive experience, right? That we know, I mean, if we were ever to really look deeply at how long that positive experience lasted, it's pretty impermanent. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty impermanent. So those are feeling, uh, the feelings or the reflections associated with uh, the four elements. Just scanning the body, I think, is really excellent. Or you could just hold the whole body in awareness and whatever body sensations that you have, you know, just, you know, you don't have to be so precise about it, but just, um, you know, uh, if you can associate it with one of the elements, it kind of takes out uh, the clinging and egoic stance or... Um, association of the body, of the physical body. And to just reflect on the impermanence of it. I mean, some, a lot of times the unpleasant sensations of the body are due to aging or to its impermanent nature. I mean, you know, we'll be sitting in um, meditation and it will be all comfortable. Wow, this is great. I'm getting some samadhi. I'm really calm and collected. I can, you know, see the seven factors of awakening. And then 20 minutes later, you start feeling a little bit of uh, pressure or stinging or um, pulling in some part of the body. And it goes from very pleasant to unpleasant. So just noticing the changes of uh, that in the body or how the body is changing is excellent. And you don't need to think about it. Mindfulness just watches that. Wow, that didn't last very long. That's changing. <laughs> and, um, you know, what we do to alleviate that unpleasant sensation. Actually, feeling tone or Vedana in Pali is a feeling the second aggregate. So the first aggregate form is the body, and, and you know, there's many ways you can think about it, but the Buddha advised, you know, reflecting on uh, the elements as a way to uh, see the impermanence of the body. And I love it that when he taught Rahula, his son, how to meditate, that was the first meditation he taught him, how to do a body scan for the four elements. And I thought, well, if it's good enough for his son, it's good enough for all of us, right? But then the second um, reflection is one of the most profound ones, and that is Vedana or feeling tone. Um, I think someone's going to talk about dependent origination. I don't know. Is somebody going <laughs> to? Which is one of the deepest teachings of the Buddha about how all of this life works. And uh, in that teaching... Um, one of the most profound one is, you know, we all have contact, right? We're all having contact right now. Contact with some external thing. And uh, after contact is Vedana, a feeling tone. So some of you might be experiencing my Dharma talk as pleasant. Some of you might be experiencing it as unpleasant. And some of you might be experiencing it as neutral. So why don't you check in right now? 
What is it feeling like? Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? And I love it. The Buddha talked about seeing how Vedana changes. And there's actually six kinds of Vedana. There's bodily Vedana, bodily feelings, and mental feelings. And they're pretty distinct. You know, as I just said, we're sitting comfortably or standing or lying down and we're relaxed. And these are pleasurable feelings. After a while, we feel a bit tired of sitting or standing or lying down. These are painful feelings or unpleasant feelings. What about our face? This was interesting. There seems to be neither pleasure nor pain in our faces. This is neutral feeling. And we can reflect on the same way when we are walking or running. Actually, we we, uh, walked up from the teacher housing and (laughs) it was so funny. We were doing Vedana the whole way. (laughs) Is this unpleasant? Yes, this is unpleasant. Stepping in uh, four feet of snow is definitely unpleasant. Freezing cold is pretty unpleasant, yes. (laughs) It was cool. I thought, wow, we're... This is good. We're actually doing Vedana, walking in a nor'easter. Yeah, it was good. So those are bodily sensations. And those are always available because Vedana is also one of those things that's, you know, a mental factor that's always present. But we hardly ever notice it. But, oh, my gosh. In dependent origination, we have contact Vedana, and Vedana decides what we do next. But let me talk about mental feelings. So um, we're enjoying listening to this talk. Uh, This is a pleasant feeling or you're feeling a little bit of entertainment. Yeah, I liked some entertainment. Just not looking at this heart, mind, body all the time. That could be a pleasant feeling. And after a while, we might feel tired or feeling like, oh, yeah, she's just going on and on. And that might be unpleasant. Or, you know, we know, given my intersectionality, uh, being an old brown woman, that you could say, does she know what she's talking about? That could be part of our, you know, latent tendencies. That's, you know, a pretty common occurrence, (laughs) for me anyway. And uh, that could be an unpleasant feeling. And then we could look around and you know, look at something in the meditation hall or something at IMS more generally and just, you know, it's not beautiful, it's not ugly, it could just be a neutral feeling. And in uh, dependent origination, Vedana is so central because unconsciously, if something is pleasant, we're running after it without even realizing it, whether it's a wholesome thing to do or a not wholesome thing to do. It's, you know, seeing what Vedana or feeling tone is arising, either physically or mentally, is an excellent reflection for the practice. And you don't need to have an opinion about it. I mean, I think I said yesterday, too, that, you know, when we put our mindfulness frame around what we're seeing, when we have enough um, samadhi or concentration, we're able to see things with not a lot of I, me, and mine. We're just seeing it arising and see what's happening to it. And, um, you know, we can see 
that we're running after pleasant things and we're running away from unpleasant things. One experience I have when I'm on retreat is um, I'll want a cup of tea with a lot of honey in it. I don't know if anybody else has that experience. <laughs> but I, and I'll, I will, you know, surrender to it and I'll go have it. But I will make sure that I notice how long that hit of pleasant lasts. <laughs> it lasts like the first four sips and then it gets weaker and weaker and weaker. <laughs> and um, the same with unpleasant feelings, you know. And neutral feelings. When I'm on retreat, I remember sitting the three months here. I think it was in 2005 or something. And um, I was having a lot of um, neutral feeling. And so I, and that's, you know, when you have neutral feeling, neutral Vedana, is when your mind tends to wander. So think about it. If you can, you know, uh, Think about, you know, your mind wanders and you come back to the present moment and think, what triggered that mind wandering? It's often a, a neutral feeling tone. And for me, I would always uh, look around and figure out who I was going to marry in the room. <laughs> and this was such a common mental factor for me, you know, this desire and this, you know, total... Uh, illusion about just how long you know relationships provide us with the ultimate happiness that I actually uh, named it RF romantic fantasy <laughs> and so I would say oh I see your romantic fantasy I must be having neutral Vedana <laughs> but that's the way to really just watch how it happens and to realize that it is uh, caused by causes and conditions right I mean, is this really us or is this causes and conditions coming together? Things that we've learned about what we think are going to make us happy and where we go. But anyway, so um, those are Vedana, really important. And in dependent in, um, origination, it's also uh, very much tied into our becoming, which is egoic clinging, who we think we are, or who we want to be, or who we imagine ourselves at a point. It's, uh, it is um, contact, feeling, uh, tanha, craving. We're either craving to be away from it or craving to be close to it. Um, and then um, upadana, which is becoming. We become, you know, many different things, you know. We become the person who is in love or the person who's smarter than this other person or not as smart as that person. Or There's so much becoming. And that's a really excellent thing to see too. But Anyway, so those are the first two ways to reflect on, um, on the aggregates. Again, first is the body and the four elements. The second is to look at Vedana uh, bodily and mental, uh, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And we don't need to really think about it. And you know what I always do? I always wince after I see it. Like I'll see my desire or I'll see my um, aversion and then I'll just wince or I'll just find myself after five minutes of you know, wandering mind, I'll come back and I'll wince, but the wince is just the next thing to see, our negative reaction to being human, right? 
Like, I should be better than that. And, you know, what's underneath that? Am I the only one that winces? <laughs> so those are Vedana. That's the second thing. And then there is... Um, there is form, feeling, perceptions. And perceptions are thoughts. And, you know, again, I think I kind of jumped the gun. There, you know, we have certain thought patterns that are pretty well, you know, they're very strong elements in us. And most of our thoughts are actually come from um, the three root poisons. A lot of our thoughts do, and that's greed, aversion, and delusion. So... Um, you know, we could look at our thoughts and uh, figure out what conditioned that thought to arise in that moment because everything is conditioned. You know, everything arises because of, third, uh, of certain, certain experiences. And um, so um, responding to our thoughts, perceptions, and just recognizing our thoughts, uh, just being able to see them. And it's always great, you know, when our mind wanders, <clears throat> we probably need to get a little bit more concentration or samadhi. And I, for me, that's a sign to go back to anchoring my attention uh, on the breath wherever it's most predominant in the body. And, um, or uh, doing body scans. Body scans are really can bring about a lot of samadhi as well. So... Uh, but anyway, um, responding to our thoughts or recognizing our thoughts is really important. And, um, you know, again, this is uh, uh, brought about by Vedana, by us wanting to have pleasant things, having the thought, man, I really need to go get a cup of tea because that'll make me happy. Or I'm going to marry that person over there, but, you know, two days later we're divorced and the kids don't have any dad. No. <laughs> Just the mental, you know, patterns that we have of what we think, you know, how we entertain ourselves, essentially, particularly with neutral Vedana. It's all about entertaining ourselves and to be able to see that. So how do we respond to our thoughts? Again, it's really helpful uh, to see if there are um, patterns of thoughts that we have, like, you know, I don't like this person over there. Okay, so the last time I was on retreat, oh my gosh, talk about a bad thought pattern. I was uh, lucky enough to sit the very first retreat that was at uh, Spirit Rock. And um, I was so happy that a Coast Miwok elder was going to come and um, was going to come to Spirit Rock for the very first time, you know, and help us with the land acknowledgement. And... Uh, someone there in a very high position said something that was just, you know, I reacted to it. It was really nothing, but oh my God, I was having so much aversion and the thoughts about it were just crazy. I even told the teacher, you know, somebody really did something really bad and you know, I feel like I need to address it right now. And it was just crazy how mad and averse I was. And it, it was pretty much what happened was um, this person who's actually a beautiful person who I'm in, you know, love right now, uh, she was the um, conduit for all of the racism and sexism and, you know, ageism and 
people just not understanding settler colonialism. And it was like a, a trauma release for me or something. I had projected all of these very harsh feelings onto her. And then as soon as I talked to her after the retreat, um, it was absolutely fine. And, you know, I loved her again. But just seeing, you know, I wasn't getting a lot of, um, I was getting some, um, you know, distance from those feelings. But just seeing that was like, it was like a trauma response, right? And that's another thing that can happen. A lot of our thoughts, particularly really uh, strong uh, negative emotions, can be a trauma response, absolutely. So, but it's, you know, best if you can to come back to the samadhi, uh, deepen the samadhi a little, and, and try to see it with um, some mindfulness that is not so I, me, and mine. I know I'm not saying that clearly, but you you know what I mean, right? Not take it so personally, because it's not personal at all. I mean, it's absolutely a trauma, uh, can be a trauma response. The thoughts, you know, uh, when they're just so consistent and won't let us go. Yeah. That's why I always say that a good retreat has a fair amount of sobbing meditation and stomping meditation. (laughs) Just for us to let go of those, you know, deeply held uh, trauma responses. Because that trauma in our body, it affects our perception of life and actually causes a lot of these things. So it's good to see that and just let it go. So that is uh, recognizing our thoughts, you know, to see if we can see any patterns and give it a name like romantic fantasy or, um, you know, Better than, you know, conceit is a good thought pattern too. Better than, worse than, or same as, or actually uh, manifestations of conceit. So those are recognizing our thoughts. And again, you know, we usually think about, you know, why we had it or where that's from. And, you know, all we need to do is let mindfulness collect the data of it. And we'll have an insight about it, about how it's definitely impermanent because you know yeah that was one excellent example of impermanence on that retreat i was so mad at a person and then a day later you know i wanted to just hang around with her for a couple weeks or something so it's crazy how impermanent those thoughts are and those reactions those thoughts so that is um that is perception that's the third aggregate perception and then uh, mental formations, sankaras, are emotions. They are um, emotional response patterns that we have. Um, and those are also uh, often based on desiring, disliking, and being deluded. Desiring is when you know, we think that this is where our happiness is, so emotionally we're really attached to it, like a good cup of tea with honey or some chocolate bars, or whatever we think it is. You know, emotional love, a feeling like, you know, being deluded to think that all of these things are permanent. And that's one thing to reflect on, is how they're changing. You know, that's how we reflect on them to have an insight into impermanence. Yeah, this thought pattern is like this, but notice when it changes, because it absolutely will change. It absolutely will.
And then, so emotions, you know, what emotion are we having now? And um, how is that going to change? You know, we're maybe with a partner and this relationship is the best I've ever had. This is what love feels like and it's going to be like this forever. Right? <laughs> Am I the only one that it actually changes pretty much every day? <laughs> you know, those things change. They're not permanent. But we have this unconscious idea that it is permanent, that this is where our happiness is. And uh, in order for this to be right or real, it needs to be like this. And, you know, if we're holding any of our relationships, our partners, our jobs, our friendships, if they all have to be a certain way, you know, we're probably uh, not very uh, gracious or compassionate because those relationships are changing all the time. And just to watch how they change. We don't need to have an opinion about them. The mindfulness just collects the data about how it changes. And we're just collecting that data to have an insight into impermanence. So that is Sankara's or um, the, um, you know, emotions, Sankara's, mental formations. And then... That's the fourth one. And then the fifth one is consciousness, which is a little bit abstract. And the way that the Buddha uh, defines that is to, um, it's just uh, given our histories and you know, all of the intersectionality that we bring to any particular experience, how we are relating to it or what it means to us. It's kind of a deep co uh, concept or how we interpret something. And, um, you know, just to see the impermanence of that, you know. And actually, oh, there is a, a, the mindfulness of um, thoughts. I just want to talk about this one particular thing that happens, and it's called papancha. I'm sure many of you have known papancha, but some of you might not know it. And that's just a mental proliferation. I think like what I was doing to that person on retreat, I just had total papancha about one sentence, she said. It was one sentence. And I just had some deep papancha about it. So we can also label when something like that is happening as papancha. And then... Um, so consciousness, so the aggregate of consciousness, how do we reflect on that? And that's just to um, understand that our perception of anything or is, you know, our consciousness is a product of three things, three, three, three things of the, of the sense doors. And that is um, our eyes, um, you know, need to be working. There needs to be something to see and light enough to see it. And then um, we will have um, an interpretation of that as consciousness or, you know, we'll see something. Uh, we'll know what that is. We'll, you know, say a name to it or say what it is. And that is, um, you know, the conditions for for um, consciousness, you know, seeing consciousness to happen. Hearing consciousness, there's three things that need for hearing consciousness to happen. We have to have ears, we have to have something that's making a noise, and we need to have attention to that thing. And all of those things are impermanent. 
you know, the sound, our ability to hear. I'm getting old and my hearing is really going. And um, attention to something, you know, that is the condition for hearing consciousness to happen. Tasting consciousness. I don't know if there's any long haulers in here or people who have had COVID. Oh my gosh, my taste buds are gone. You know, it's amazing how little taste sense I have now. And, um, you know, so in order for tasting uh, consciousness to happen, there has to be taste buds, something to eat, or something that has a taste to it and attention to that thing. And um, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, you know, there needs to be, our body needs to be able to sense sensation. There needs to be something that we are attending to that's providing sensation and then um, our attention to that. So that's how consciousness happens. And all of those things are constantly changing. How do we see the arising and passing away of aggregates? That's what the Buddha said is, um, is uh, the reflections that we need to have an insight into impermanence. And it's to see all of those things and just notice how they arise and they pass away. You know, just to see the beginning of them if we can, and definitely watch the ending of them if we can, you know. To see the ending of them too is, um, is the way to um, have an insight about impermanence. And we don't need to have a lot of thinking or cognitive um, assessment of what's going on, just collect the data with as strong of samasati, right mindfulness as we can, and that feeds the insight for impermanence. It's like, wow, this stuff is changing all the time. Yeah. So I know that was a lot. <laughs> Let's sit for a moment. May any merit be generated by giving this Dharma talk or listening to this Dharma talk. May we quickly become the state of a Buddha in order to help all beings, including ourselves, be free from suffering. Now we're going to have some walking meditation. impermanence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.